Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Coming out of college is very difficult for me emotionally. It wasn't just that I was done with college. I was no longer in any bands. So college, I was social butterfly. I was in committees and snowboard club. I put on concerts at college. And then extracurricularly, I was in like metal bands. I was touring and that gave me confidence. And then I finished college and the bands had stopped and college was stopped. And I was just this guy and I, I could not get a good job. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had a music degree, but no real plan for a career. And the drinking at night to go to sleep accelerated. You know, I was the party guy at the beginning of college, but by the end of college, my phone stopped ringing. Like people weren't calling me to go to the parties because I was kind of beyond fun, like more obnoxious or just sad. (laughs) Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame and I am your host. Today we have my cousin, Andy Kite. Andy grew up searching for a place to fit in and find acceptance. In high school, he found it when he got blackout drunk at a college party. Suddenly, people were talking to him about how funny he was when he was drunk, and he liked that attention. So he leaned into it. In college, he found more acceptance by blacking out and doing things that people could laugh about the next day. But as college went on, he found people were growing more and more tired of this persona. He found the phone was ringing less and less often. By the end of college, the phone wasn't ringing at all. When he graduated, all the places he'd defined himself by went away and the drinking got worse. He began getting fired from jobs, racking up direct consequences of his drinking, such as DUIs. He was completely out of control. Shortly after his 25th birthday and another consequence of his drinking, things began to change. Andy's story shows something at the heart of everyone who struggles with addiction, the need for relief that they cannot get through other means. The substance becomes the solution to the pain until it becomes the cause of it, often stealing the very thing that it gave us in the first place. I think it's important to note that Andy has used his recovery as an asset in his career in tech. And I really want to highlight that because I believe that the fact that you are in recovery can be something incredibly beneficial to you as you push forward in your career in other places. And so getting sober, getting help is really important in all aspects of your life, but can be an advantage in that area. So I just wanted to to highlight that. All right. Without further ado, I give you Andy Kite. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Andy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is so fun. I believe that we are third cousins by marriage. I get that right? I come from a small family, so this huge family stuff's all new to me. Sounds right. Sounds right. Okay, there we go. (laughs) He co-signed it. You heard it here. Andy, how long have you been sober? I've been sober 16 years, since 2005. Awesome, awesome. What's your sobriety date? June 10th, 2005. Okay, so we're coming up on uh, 17. Yep. That's awesome. That's incredible. So... 
tell me a little bit about what it was like. And you, you said you come from a small family, what it was like growing up and where you grew up. I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I moved around a lot, but I lived in the Berkshires and the Springfield area. My mother and then my stepmother were an art teacher and a guidance counselor, respectively. My father is a minister and has always been. So that has had its effects being the preacher's kid. What do those effects look like? So, you know, when I was middle school age and kids started smoking cigarettes and huffing gas and stealing packs of gum, I didn't. I like said, no, thanks. And then there was kids whose moms made them hang out with me to, so that maybe I would rub off on them. So they got like carted over to my house against their will. I had some morality and confidence to stand up from my dad. The other effect, I think, is like the minister is a small time celebrity. So you get like attention when you go to the church and people know who you are and think you're special. Did you think that you were special? Oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I spoke with a lot of adults at a young age and they chatted with me. So I just, you know, it was just a way to get attention. You're getting attention. It doesn't sound like it was the type of attention that maybe you wanted. Is that, does that feel accurate? No, it was good. You know, I guess... I think there's a through line with my drinking and some of my things about attention. That's why I brought it up. You, you know, the people in the church know who you are. The kids at school know you're the minister's kid. It's just, it's a thing. Yeah. I initially said no to drugs and alcohol because of that, maybe. But I also chose to do activities that got me attention later. How old were you when your parents got divorced? I was in fifth grade when they got divorced. They separated. My mom lived separately for about a year. And then they fully divorced soon after that. What kind of effect did that have on you? It was pretty tough. It's hard for me to say the full impacts without being a therapist and everything, but uh, the moving and the divorce probably both combined are difficult. I moved like three times in the middle of growing up in first grade and then in third grade and then in high school, in the middle of high school. The divorce happened in like fifth grade and I had to start doing that shuttling thing between houses, you know, going to mom's house in the weekend, dad's in the midweek. And then that uh, one thing I remember is like that the drive, it was like an hour and a half drive from my mom's to my dad's house and they just had to see each other. So they're probably upset. So I would have like hobbies I do in the car, like to keep my mind occupied. Yeah. And was there any, did that taint anything with your dad being the minister? Like did that taint any part of that picture for you or for other people? No, I mean, his particular branch of Christianity, I think they're okay with divorce. I don't think it was a big deal in the congregation. I mean, they, before leading up to the divorce, they were fighting a lot, like every dinner. So I was happy that they were happier after. Did you um, experiment with any substances in grade school or high school? Yeah. So elementary school, I think some of the guys, they started to, I saw everything. I saw them roll up pine needles to fake smoke those. I saw them smoke cigarettes. I saw them start puffing gas. I saw them steal things from the convenience store. I, for some reason I'd hang out, but I wouldn't do that. I'd be like, no, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't make sense to me. So I guess like the fitting in didn't matter enough that I would do that. So I turned down the initial opportunities. And then as I got to eighth grade and freshman year, I started to get into straight edge hardcore and I didn't drink or do those things on purpose. When you get into straight edge, do are people typically coming from no use, a background of no use, or is that more people who are coming from a background of use and they're changing their ways? I think it's a mix. A lot of the people I knew had never experimented with it and they just didn't like it. There were some influential bands at the time, you know, Earth Crisis Strife that sang about it. Yeah, it was a subsect of people that went to hardcore shows that were proud of not doing drugs and drinking and sometimes would draw X's on their hands. So I was part of that briefly. You know, high school kids go through a lot of phases, but I was part of that for a while. 
what came after that phase? Well, I got more and more into playing in bands instead of just going to concerts. And I had a peer group mainly around the Worcester area. So I would like drive out to Worcester to be, go to band practice and hang out with this fun group of guys in Worcester. And some of those guys drifted off and stopped being straight edge and started to smoke weed and drink. And so, like some people I looked up to did that. So basically senior year, I tried drinking as well. What went through your mind when you saw the straight edge folks start to try using? I just remember this guy Chachi started drinking and looked fun. So kind of made it okay. And so created an opportunity for my friend Glenn and I from high school to go up to UMass and visit some guys and try drinking. How'd that go? Or <laughs> we, we brought a six pack of Cider Jack, which is disgustingly sweet, hard cider. And uh, I blacked out first night. Mm -hmm. And I heard about myself being wild and like uninhibited. And I liked the stories about that. And I wanted to do it again. What were the stories like? I, I don't exactly know. I'd have to reach out to some of those people. But I think I was hitting on college women and I was loud and confident, spoke my, confident, spoke my mind, things like that. Probably maybe someone they do you think you could say like they were describing someone that you wanted to be? Yeah. Yeah, probably. You know, I I'm definitely like an extrovert, but I'm awkward. So hearing that I was walking up to people that I didn't know and talking to them and it sounded cool. I don't know. That phase, there was a lot of being loud at parties, sometimes breaking things, sometimes people getting naked because it's funny, that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like the life of the party. Yeah. Like Will Ferrell in old school, that stuff. To me, I if I heard that I was Will Ferrell in old school, I would definitely have a hard time not drinking again the next night. Be like, where is this inner Will Ferrell that I have? So, okay. So you start, you find out, oh my gosh, like I become this person that people really like when I drink, even though I blacked out and don't remember. So from there, I would assume that you were like, okay, this drinking thing, we're going to do more of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I like something about it. I did it again, like pretty soon after. One other thing I did in retrospect that's weird is my dad had a lot of hard alcohol in the basement, like shooters that he collected from flights and whatever. And I started to drink those to help sleep. So I was the type of guy that only slept five or six hours a night and I had coffee. And then I was also taking Ritalin to focus. I think I started to do alcohol to like kind of relax, at, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night and it, I'd fall asleep sooner. In retrospect, a lot of people don't drink privately, but I hadn't Nobody told me. <laughs> did you know what, had you heard the word alcoholism? Did you know anybody who was an alcoholic or, or whatever it was called before you started drinking? Not personally. I didn't know the language or the symptoms of an alcoholic. My dad always drank two to four drinks every night, you know, like two beers before dinner and wine with dinner, but he never raised his voice or acted really any differently. So yeah, I didn't really know. I think in middle school, we had one progressive health teacher that made us go to an AA meeting. And I remember finding the people really open and candid in a weird way. But, you know, again, I did not apply that to myself or my family. What did you do after high school? What happened next is I went to college and I escalated. You know, I was on my own. So way more opportunities to drink. And yeah, I, on the weekends, I tried to be a party animal on weeknights. Actually, I probably smoked more weed because weed's just around. So I smoked a lot of other people's weed, sometimes to avoid homework. I never fully enjoy the effect of weed, but I like not being sober. So I used that. You mentioned that you were taking Ritalin 
to focus. Do you think that there was an aspect of difficulty focusing and you mentioned procrastinating so you didn't have to do homework? Do you think any of that played into the drinking? Yeah, I think they're totally related. At first, I just took it orally. Some friends told me that I I showed symptoms like their siblings and I should get it checked out. And I, I kind of would jump from topic to topic. If you're having a chat with me, I write, run over there and talk to someone else. So I, I kept the prescription going for college to get my work done. But pretty soon into it, somebody showed me that you could snort it and get the effect faster. And I could stay up drinking longer. I could drink till three or four in the morning without falling asleep from the Ritalin. And then people started asking me to buy it uh, in college. So yeah, I mean, I think it's related to my drinking. And I did choose to quit after quitting drinking because it seemed to be something I abused. So when you started drinking, you know, you get to college and are you chasing this persona? Are you following this persona that you had? This is the one you're presenting at college. Yeah. You know, I was trying to reinvent myself at college to be a confident, cool guy. You know, half the time I smoke weed is because I chatted less and I wanted to be like a Clint Eastwood talk less type of guy, which... (laughs) Not the awkward guy I am. So yeah, I think that I think that's part of it. You know, there's people who go to college and they change their name. They try to reinvent themselves. Did it work? Yeah, in some ways, definitely. You know, I, I was finding myself as I went to college. I did very poorly academically. I almost failed out the first year just because smoking weed when I have homework and uh, partying on the weekends. I just didn't prioritize the score. Did you make it all the way through college? I, I did finish. I just, you know, had to retake a couple courses, take a couple summer courses. The academic counselors gave me second chances. So I did make it through and had like a high twos, 2.8 GPA. I made it through. <laughs> what was the progression of the drinking? You know, you'd go to a party and you'd find the where the alcohol was and stand next to it until you felt really confident or you're blacked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I even, my brother and I went to a party once and he drank pretty heavily. And we noticed that we stood next to the table where the alcohol was. But um, yeah, I mean, how did it progress? I experimented with some other stuff like college freshmen do. I experimented with mushrooms and acid and I luckily never, none of those took. Um, so I never got fully addicted to any of those. It's not because of my intelligence or my willpower. I'm just lucky. You know, there was a group of people I did ecstasy with and it could have progressed and didn't, but I started out as like a enhancement to going to raves and dancing because as I was, I was all over the place. Yes, I was in a metal band, but I also like raves. I watched this group of people. They weren't from my college. They were from a town near Worcester. Go from taking one hit of X at a rave to just renting a hotel room and hitting X in the hotel. And then two or three of them are dealing. And then, oh, by the way, this other guy's in the other room doing heroin. And I just got like real freaked out and I just stopped. (laughs) I mean, I'm lucky that I saw that warning sign, but it's not because I'm intelligent. It's just happened that way. You know, a lot of the time, like in college... There's a culture of binge drinking, right? And it's always interesting to me, like there's like an acceptable level. Like if you drank the way you drank in college, most people would consider that to be problematic, might consider you to need help, et cetera. But we societally kind of have this bubble for college of these, you know, these ideas that are exceptions rather. Did you notice that there was a difference between the way you drank and the way other people drank, even in that bubble. I mean, I noticed in that I would get drunk and blackout and I'd go around apologizing to people. Like, I'm sorry if I was an asshole last night. I'm sorry. Or I heard I was rude to you. I'm sorry. Or with women, you know, if I'm sorry if the performance wasn't great or something. I don't know. Because I had no idea. I had no idea because I was, you know, it's blackouts. But I noticed that I was unique in going around apologizing to people. 
about the bubble, I mean, in retrospect, totally. I mean, we campus security is separate from real police and you get slapped on the wrist. Like if they caught you with weed, you didn't have real consequences. They said, don't do it again. So yeah, there's a bubble both in the consequences of things that would later make you stop. But yeah, a lot of people are are doing it that way. And there's usually somebody slightly worse than you. Right. Did your brain identify someone slightly worse? Yeah. I mean, there's this guy, Nugget, who smoked way more weed than me. And I definitely like, like, at least I'm not him. Right. Right. (laughs) With the drinking. I mean, I was pretty wild. I don't know. I think I I noticed people doing stuff more than me, but I don't know if I noticed people being more wild than me. Mm -hmm. When you got out of college... And I actually see this a lot with people get out of college and their drinking goes through a difficult transition period because they're coming off of four years of something that was acceptable in in college and isn't really in the rest of the world. What did it look like for you? What did your drinking look like as you, you know, once you came out of college? Uh, Well, it was bad. You know, coming out of college is very difficult for me emotionally. It wasn't just that I was done with college. I was no longer in any bands. So college, I was social butterfly. I was in committees and snowboard club. I put on concerts at college. And then extracurricularly, I was in like metal bands. I was touring and that gave me confidence. And then I finished college and the bands had stopped and college was stopped. And I was just this guy and I I could not get a good job. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had a music degree, but no real plan for a career. And the drinking at night to go to sleep accelerated. You know, I was the party guy at the beginning of college, but by the end of college, my phone stopped ringing. Like people weren't calling me to go to the parties because I was kind of beyond fun, like more obnoxious or just sad. (laughs) And then after college, you know, yeah, you don't have class. You're just drinking midweek. I guess you can go to the college bars for a year or two. But after a while, it's like, why are you still in this town? Mm-hmm. Did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. For a while. I lived in Worcester for like three to six months after graduating until I was like, I, I need to find something else to do. What did you do? I moved. You know, I moved to solve my problems. Yes. <laughs> Geographic. Yeah. So I I had an opportunity to move to Stanford, Connecticut, which is a 40 minute train ride from New York City. And then I got a job selling cell phones. I spent the weekends couch surfing at my friends' houses in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And then I'd go back to Stanford, Connecticut for the midweek. I switched careers to a teacher intern program where I'd be a high school music teacher. And my drinking had progressed a lot. I didn't have the confidence. I wasn't organized and I didn't have any classroom management skills. So the middle school kids ate me up. (laughs) It was a deal where you were, you got a free master's degree if you were an unpaid sub for a year. And um, they put me on a middle school. And I lasted six months into that until they asked me to leave. And I went back to selling cell phones. And that all the while I would go to New York City on the weekends and I would pregame on the way down to save money. So I'd be almost in a blackout by arriving at the bar concert because I would drink whiskey or something on the train on the way down. And then, you know, I had some fun, but I also wore out my welcome. You know, I stressed and then ended some of the friendships of those people because of my antics. There's one time I, I thought some guy was talking shit and I just cold cocked him in the back of the head and ran out. And it was like my friend's local bar he went to like every weekend and he couldn't go there for a long time. So, you know, there was stuff like that. What were some of the the highlight consequences of, you know, things sometimes, and I ask this because sometimes people, when they're listening, it's helpful for them to identify consequences they're experiencing. And sometimes it's things they don't realize were consequences of their drinking. What were some of the consequences of your drinking along the way that ultimately started to 
compound to get you to to where you needed to be. The first jackpot I have is that while still in college, I was with a hardcore band I was playing in at a festival in Detroit and I got really blackout drunk and I like punched somebody in the face because I thought he was not respecting me and they left me in Detroit. So that's first jackpot. I had to find a way home from Detroit. The second, another band concert. I was in Boston. After we played, I started shooting fireworks down the street in Boston and I got arrested for illegal possession of fireworks and drunk and disorderly in the middle of Boston. That was the second. And I had to you know, go to court for that. The third, near the end of college, I uh, took a trip to Cape Cod with a friend of mine and got blacked out drunk and tried to ride bicycles back to the campsite and just, you know, broke my arm. And then we had, you know, he didn't know how to drive stick. We had no gas money to get home. We had to find someone to let us babysit to get gas money. And then I drove home with a broken arm. And uh, one thing I found interesting about that is like, I got a lot of sympathy for the broken arm for my dad. And he told, you know, he told others about this. And I, I didn't admit that that was from drinking. So I got sober. I, I took that sympathy. Right, right. But um, it's completely my fault. So those are the first ones. I got a, my first DUI in Connecticut. And I don't know, the lawyer told me they saw the video and I was a complete asshole to everyone at the station. And uh, that was... You know, I called it a jackpot before, but that's like a Western Mass AA term for an event where you should have seen the signs that, you know, you got to quit that first DUI, which is a traditional warning sign that you might have a drinking problem. They, they tell you, like a judge says, you might have a drinking problem. I don't know you, but statistically, X amount of people drink and drive. And if you get caught once, you know, okay. If you get caught twice, you're probably drinking and driving like a lot. Mm-hmm. I did eventually move straight in to Brooklyn as another geographic cure. Maybe I'm not happy because I live in Connecticut. I need to live in Brooklyn. I only lasted six months living in the big city. The bars are open till four in New York. I don't know if you know that. With my drinking of whiskey and Ritalin prescription, I could rally as long as the money held. And I would overdraw my bank account every three days. And I eventually had to move home to Western Mass. What was the reason that you told, like said, oh, like I, can't, I just can't afford it? How did you package the like, I need to move home? Well, the drinking in Brooklyn got really bad. I mean, I, I wasn't eating much. I got thin and I was just drinking whiskey and then dealing with hangovers for the first two hours every morning. I would show up at work at the cell phone store sweating alcohol. So even though I, I didn't drink in the morning, I smelled like alcohol. My coworkers told me that. And I was getting a little crazy just from drinking whiskey so much. I also tried to be a concert promoter and I kind of, I got in some bad relationships with some bar owners for like not either for my own drunk antics or for like just not performing in that other gig, probably for my antics. But I kind of thought people are out to get me. I thought that because I was always in blackouts, I thought there was people in the day that recognized me and wanted to get me. So I was kind of getting into a state of paranoia. Plus I was broke and my roommates were kind of sick of me. They were sick of my whatever, being late on rent, being loud, all of it. How do you find your way to recovery? Because, right, AA is not for you. You know, you've been to a couple meetings. What happens? Well, I lived at home with my mom and I, I tried, you know, I was drinking midweek to fall asleep and I was trying to find things to do on the weekend, but I didn't know people. But basically, I, I finally reconnected with some people in Western Mass that could watch me be drunk on weekends. They'd have the privilege to watch me be drunk on weekends. And I just got more DUIs. I got a second, you know, another DUI in Western Mass, and that has some mandatory AA. And six months later, I got another DUI. And it was like a week after I got my license back. Oof. And, and that was like, I hit a couple parked cars. Somebody at the party told me, hey, you hit my friend. You're going to have to talk to her. And I had to talk to her about destroying her car. 
So yeah, it was that last DUI that gave me the moment of clarity that I'm now grateful for. I thought I might have to do jail time for that. So I was kind of terrified. It was undeniable to me that it was, you know, so soon after the last DUI and a week after getting my license back. And I had no plan. I I was going to go out to a party, but I had no plan to get home. My planning never finished to, okay, you're going to this party where you don't really know anyone. You don't have a place to crash up there. So, but you'll figure it out. Right. And you're driving there. And I'm driving there. It was like a 40 minute drive to Northampton. I mean, I just, I did not make a plan to not drink and drive. And I, I, I don't know how to explain that. I do. It's alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, we'll figure it out down the line. We'll disassemble the bomb on the way down from out of the plane. So how do you get, how do you get your sobriety date? Well, it's the day after waking up from the holding cell in jail. So June 9th was an MIA concert in Northampton. June 10th was the next day. And I woke up with a different attitude. I called my dad and I admitted it. And he connected me with this guy, David, who is a minister he knew who was an AA. And uh, that guy became my sponsor. I started going to meetings, but with an open mind. And, you know, instead of comparing, I identified with what people were saying. Instead of throwing out what they were saying, I found the pieces that I could relate to. I was willing to go to any length. Like I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> I didn't want to hit any more cars, any more DUIs. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. Oh, we've got meetings. I just wanted to let you know because I think that you will love them. It doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out how to navigate relationships in your sobriety or trying to get your nutrition to a healthier place or working on your parenting recovery or just trying to find meditation that will work for you. You've been trying to do it. You know it's good for you, but they all make you sit too still and you're really not into mantras and you're not sure if you're supposed to sit in a chair or the couch or your bed. There are so many support groups to choose from, more than 70 a week, and I'm sure you'll find one that you love. I'd like to give you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app and use promo code COURAGE at checkout for one month free of meetings. Again, go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app. Use promo code COURAGE for one month of free meetings. Okay, back to the show. So when you finally started to look for the similarities and not the differences, what were some of the things that that you started to hear in those meetings? Well, I mean, my attitude was totally changed. I was I recognized that this group of people, regardless of their day jobs or lack of day jobs, had a thing I wanted. They had a skill set that I didn't have. They knew how to stay sober for whatever they raised their hands for, whether it was a month or a year or 20 years. They knew how to do that. And I didn't know how to do that despite my college degree. I, I recognized that, that I wanted that. So anything else that made me uncomfortable, I was able to put aside. So at the time, and still, I'm somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist, but I used the group as a higher power. These people are a higher power. They know how to do this, and I don't. So that kind of got me over the hurdle of, oh, it's all God stuff in AA. I heard that AA had the best track record, and it was the only thing I knew of in 2005. So I stuck with that. It was free. And I had court mandated. I told the judge I was 
willing to go to four meetings a week. So she mandated four meetings a week with the court cards. And, but I did it. I did it for two years and I got the signatures. I never faked them. I mean, the first two years I was on what they call cloud nine. I, I loved it. I liked being sober. I liked how I felt. The insomnia that I cured with drinking a bottle of red wine, it went away since June 10th. I just, by taking it off the table as an option, I didn't need alcohol to sleep. I, I mean, I think I did try some, yeah, no, before I mentally committed in between the second and third DUI, I got prescribed solid plan and some sleep drugs that I asked for, you know, a doctor didn't tell me and that never worked. But after the moment of clarity, giving up alcohol, I've been able to sleep. That's incredible. So you get sober and you get the sponsor. And for two years, you're on these court cards going four times a week. And how quickly did your life change? Well, I mean, I was career-wise doing pretty bad. Leading up to that, I was kind of going downwards. You know, if you looked at my hourly pay, it was going down. I had to start over with an almost minimum wage paying job, putting files away. But AA gave me this positive attitude and I just stuck through it. You know, I wore headphones while I put the files away and I, I kind of knew it wouldn't be forever. And I moved up. You know, I met people at that company and I got trained and got a better job there as an insurance company. And um, but yeah, the, having that foundation of AA helped with that because previously I was losing jobs from whatever, from being late, from not hitting commitments, being sloppy, whatever. I talked to a lot of people about sober dating and finding people, you know, there's struggle, they're afraid, like, am I only going to be able to marry someone who's in recovery? How do I date? And your wife is, is not in the program. Can you talk a little bit about being able to manage that experience of dating while sober, even if the other person isn't? Yeah. So I got sober and I actually, I didn't date anyone for a few years. I wanted to, I just had difficulty. I mean, part of it was where I was living. There wasn't a lot of 30 year olds in East Longmeadow and Springfield, Mass. I did start dating someone who was not in the program in the early time, but you know, she had her own issues with depression and medication. I mean, I think one thing I learned was I did try to influence her decisions to stay on medication because she would, uh, once she was doing well on the medication, she'd want to go off of it. And I thought I knew better and I would tell her what to do instead of accepting who she is and supporting what I can. So I, I don't have any direct experience dating someone in the program or with complete sobriety. I've always dated normies, as you guys call them. <laughs> My current wife is not in the program and she does drink. And I am able to buy her alcohol at the liquor store without any anxiety, but she's a normal drinker. She drinks her taste. I haven't seen any indication that she goes over the line. So I think that's been okay. The other thing that changed... Before I started dating my current wife, I stopped trying to change the person. I accepted her for whatever she was when I came into it and hope she did for me as well. You know, I was already three or four years sober at that point. And it, I wasn't like, you know, live with my shitty version. I'll be better later. I was just, this is what I am. Did you have trouble? Like, were you concerned about telling these women that you didn't drink anymore, that, that you were a non-drinker? No, no, I've never had an issue with that. I mean, I can say that at some point I did want to date someone that had an identical resume to me. Like I wanted to date someone in AA who likes electronic music, who likes outdoor sports. And at some point I was like, I'm not going to find that person, like an exact replica of me. And I'll find somebody that I, you know, intellectually connect with and someone that has some similar interests. And, you know, that's worked for me. But um, I've never had anxiety about telling someone I'm sober. I mean, there's periods where I kind of told everyone. Then I realized, you know, there is a anonymity part of AA. And sometimes people make prejudgments about people in recovery, either 
for good reasons or bad reasons. So I did kind of, I don't tell my employers or my coworkers unless it kind of comes up organically, but I've never had anxiety about telling people I date that I don't drink or that, you know, we're going to go to this place and I'm not going to drink. Doesn't your employer do background checks or like, has it come up in an employment situation? No, it's never come up. No. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. I mean, I got hired to a company that's pretty difficult to get hired from. And so that's okay. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, when it comes up in work meetings, I just, I, I don't drink. You say I don't or drink. I, I'll say I used to drink, but I don't drink anymore. If they're uncomfortable, it's their own problem. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. <laughs> you married into a very heavy drinking family and potentially have had the experience of witnessing other people's either growing, budding or something in between problems that have probably affected your family. What has that been like? How have you used your recovery to live through that experience? You know, in terms of my comfort level, I can go to a restaurant with alcohol and be fine. I can go to a wedding where there's alcohol and be fine. If I go to just a bar, it's a little weird because like the primary activity is drinking. And I don't know, one of the typical weekend nights at a reunion, or if it's one of those nights where everyone gets trashed and stays up till two or three, I don't know. I just kind of feel a little bored and awkward. <laughs> the stuff they're doing is not that fun, <laughs> like playing darts at one or two in the morning. But there's some good parts, you know, now that I have kids, it's a little different because I'll just be the one that goes to bed early with the kids. You know, I haven't been present for any jackpots there, like people acting really crazy or making regrettable decisions. Well, there was some drunk driving, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, it hasn't been like a risk to my sobriety. Just, uh, you know, again, the, the long nights where grown adults are acting like it's college. I just a little, little awkward, a little bored. Yeah. Have you had the opportunity or has it potentially arisen where you've been able to use your recovery to share an experience or provide context for people or help people in that setting? I mean, I've had positive effects indirectly to other people. My friend CJ from college, who I live with in Brooklyn, got sober because he thought if Andy can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me that. So I didn't know that. And I hope that I've had a positive effect people I can identify with when I've shared at meetings. I don't currently sponsor anyone, but I'm open to it. I'm kind of choosy about when I bring it up with family and how I do. I, I don't know. I try to have a, a light touch and be positive. You know, I know people that are in the middle of alcoholism or addiction are very touchy about how it's presented. You know, it works best when they come to it or when they come to you with questions. That doesn't mean I won't talk about it. I just, I, I mean, there is one family member who I, I don't know why, but I kind of cracked. I approached him in a horrible way. Like I confronted him and he doesn't have any of the skills I have or the background I have and it didn't work. So I think that one experience is one of the only times I've confronted someone and with like a horrible 12th step <laughs> attempt that was on misguided. People aren't going to like being told, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know, most people, most people, if you have to do a 12 step with a 12 step call for people who don't know is where you, you go and you, you know, proselytize, you share your experience, <laughs> strength and hope, so to speak. And typically it's 
you know, it can be done in situations under duress. Them being unhappy about you talking about it isn't necessarily a sign that it wasn't successful. Not successful, rather, but that you did something wrong. That's a a totally realistic outcome of someone even doing a 12th step well. Yeah, I I tried to bring my knowledge to another person, but I I had no plan. I hadn't talked to my sponsor about it. Right, okay. After this, after this occurred, I had tons of anxiety for weeks and I started going to Al-Anon for how I was feeling because there's this person in my life there. They were on my mind all the time for how they drank and I couldn't control it. So I went to a couple Al-Anon meetings. I think something to share my experience around what our, you know, our extended, extended family, we have our extended, extended family and you, you live and are there much more often, but we have this in our family, five or maybe six generations now of family members, extended family members. And it's this, this what used to be an old farm and it's this property in Western Mass where our family often gets together and hangs out in different branches of the family and so on and so forth. And for me personally, it is that, I don't know if you know this, but um, the closest I have ever been to drinking in my entire sobriety was sitting next to you at, a reunion some years ago when I was there with my kids. We were sitting, talking outside and there was someone who had put a glass, a shot of whiskey and it was sitting in front of me. I came down to talk to you and my hand was near it and I was so stressed and it was so... I was so upset being there. I was so like just a, a mess with because I was there alone with the twins. And that is the closest that I... I remember you and I were talking. I have no idea what we were talking about. It's like relatively small talk. And I remember thinking, if I don't stand up, like push my knees straight right now, I'm going to get drunk. And I stood up and walked into the house. And it is the absolute, like there, if I had not done that, I would have been drunk. It was 100% the closest I've ever been. And it's interesting because to me that it's a very triggering, I can go to bars. I can go to a lot of places where there's alcohol, a lot. And this you know, this place that, that our family goes to have these reunions and have these good times. It, for a lot of people, they have their version of that in their families, right? They hear, they're like, well, what am I going to do at the 4th of July celebration? Or what am I going to do? And in every other context of my life, I'm okay. Like I feel okay. Other than wineries, I don't go to wineries. Even at 16 or whatever, I guess it was like 14. We were like 14 years sober at the time. Under enough stress in the wrong situation, it's dangerous. And I think that you have much more contact with that, but that a lot of people have to learn how to deal with family members or events or things that happen, but that there are really great ways to do it. There are allies in those situations. There are formulas you can come up with like, okay, I'm going to go to this many meetings beforehand, or I'm going to go to bed when that, like you said, I'm going to go to bed when this starts to happen, you know, and things you can do. And I think those things the ways that we protect our sobriety, if we're going to be in those situations, like you said, I didn't call my sponsor. I didn't have a plan. Okay. So you have a lot of family members that drink. You want to tell them something. Okay. Don't go up to them when they're drinking and you don't have a plan. Right. Like those are really important things 
for people to hear and talk about because it's not necessarily intuitive. You're like, no, I have this information. I know what's happening. I got to tell them I'm their family member. They're going to, you know, people are going to support us. And just having those recovery skills that you talk about are really important. And I know that when I'm around that, that amount of focus on the drinking, even though I'm around it in lots of other contexts, it's very, very difficult for me. So I wasn't sure if that was a piece of like how you've navigated that or if just like such a, it's such a common thing for you that you're comfortable with it at this point. No, I I did not know that. And I didn't know you were that close to drinking that time. You should have told me (laughs) if I could have helped, I would have. I mean, I think the farm is a different mental space for you and my wife, because you grew up there, you have this other nostalgia I think you went there when you were using, right? I was always, every time I've been there, I've been the sober version of me. So I have no memories of drinking there. So, but I understand what you're saying. I mean, I, the only times I've been close to drinking, I mean, there was a, I'm, I'm really passionate about my job. I put a lot into that. There was like a, a mistake at work and I was worried I was going to lose my job. I was like, couldn't sleep at night for a couple nights. I think I thought about it, like passing thought during those days. So that happens in terms of day-to-day triggers. If somebody sticks like whiskey under my nose or like they're really near me, like straight whiskey, that is a trigger. But everything else smells is usually okay. I don't have a trigger at the farm per se or weddings or anything. Again, like I do get a little antsy at bars just because I'm like, why am I here? I don't want to be here. Like, why are these people sitting at this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I go to one bar like every three years. So it's not a, a big issue. I think one of the things I had planned to talk about was the benefits of sobriety and how alcohol being a tool in your toolkit helps when difficult things are happening. So now, you know, if you think about life in the last three years, you know, we're all living through COVID, we're isolated. You can't do a lot of the things that bring you joy. You can't go to movies or eat at dinner. So life's kind of changed, like the ratio and mix of fun things to not not fun things has changed. Yeah, yeah, that's real. And my work, you know, lots of downsizing, lots of turnover, lots of anxiety about is my job going to be there tomorrow? Our family member died in December, my brother-in-law, and he was an amazing person. And that's been difficult. And uh, my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is the more rare but very difficult type where we have to count all of her carbs and administer insulin before every meal meal. So like, I have to be on for that. I, you know, and I'm very grateful that I'm sober so that I can do that. I can do simple math and administer a shot four times a day to my daughter and keep her alive. If I wasn't sober, I, I wouldn't be able to do those things. I wouldn't be able to navigate my brother-in-law's death as well as I have. You know, I'm grateful for being in recovery for all that stuff. It's a good tool in the toolkit. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a really special toolkit. What are some of the ways, you know, your sister lost her only sibling, her brother. What are some of the ways that you have found, you know, that you learned in recovery and probably even in Al-Anon, like how to be there for other people while still taking care of yourself? Like what are some of the things that you've employed? I don't know. It's been difficult. They're doing a non-traditional process. They're going to have a party in June of this year. There, there's been no formal funeral. You know, in the early days, we had family staying with us and I had to to deal with other people's grief um, while I had my own. Yeah. And everyone handles grief differently. I tried to be supportive for my wife. She's not super vocal about her grief process. I try to keep together. But yeah. I mean, I just try to be calm and reliable. That's my strategy, I guess. I, I know it's there, you know, and it doesn't go away, especially in sobriety. There's no numbing it. So Yeah. Yeah. There's no way out but through. 
and it's, I mean, it's, it's such a blessing that you're this far along too, because I think that makes such a difference in the beginning. It's just so much about like not picking, you know, the first two years you went to four meetings a week. Like it's just so much about not picking up and not, you know, retraining the brain and the neural pathways. And then over time, like my girlfriend says, life gets lifey, you know, like then, you know, once you have that, like not drinking part kind of on automatic, then you start to, okay, like, how do I deal with these different things? And, and I think that sometimes there's this idea that that life's going to be easy or not painful or whatever you get. Like I got sober so that life can be all roses and, and puppies. And, and the reality is that life is what life is. We just have learned to show up differently and to deal with our pain differently. And I think the big thing that in your story that I heard was that it brought you a lot of relief you know, there was this thing that brought you relief. It brought you the relief of it changed you into the person you needed to be. It helped you sleep. You know, it, it was like this thing that brought you relief. And that's how I felt too. And sometimes I know in long-term recovery, I'm like, it's not even that I really want to drink. It's just that I want relief. Like I can feel almost like the desire for a, to quote unquote relapse. It's not really like that I really would like a shot of Jack Daniels. Like it's not really, I'm not like, oh my God, I must have this. It's this, I need relief from this. Like this is so big. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to feel this. And I would imagine that finding out that your daughter has diabetes, type 1 diabetes was probably that. And I've had things with my kids where, you know, there's just no time for us to have a meltdown. And I, I sometimes feel like other parents can have a meltdown because it's not fatal, you know, like they can fall apart because it's not like a fatal situation, but like we can't fall apart like that. It's just, it's fatal. And the risk, I don't know if you felt like this, but when I had kids... I felt like the stakes changed so much for my like my sobriety. Like it went from I don't know, it went from like I'm going to do this to like I can't relapse or my kids I will basically be a different person for my children. Like the stakes just the stakes were just never that high. I mean, I can identify with what you said about bringing me relief because it did. I previously thought that if I got the right ratio of the right day job, the right band, because I wanted to be the guys in a band, the right girlfriend. And if I got like my physique right, then I could drink like everyone else and it wouldn't turn horrible. When I finally, when it clicked, I realized it was the drinking that was causing me to get shittier jobs and me to go downward, even though I'm so brilliant. And it gave me really, and it also like the whole process of drinking was had so much anxiety as I stood by the table at the party to make sure I got enough alcohol before it ran out. And then I would black out and then I'd go around apologizing and, you know, who did I hook up with last night? And did I wear a condom and all this shit that was a concern during that time. It wasn't fun. It stopped being fun, especially in the ages of 22 to 25. It wasn't fun. Even in 16 years in sobriety, my definition of like contentness is like easier because I remember what it was like for me before, just the day-to-day -day anxiety. And I, I appreciate life on a daily basis, perhaps more than normies, whatever you want to call them, just because I, I don't feel like I need the next thing, the next new car, because um, I remember what I was like before I got sober. So that's, that's a cool benefit. And that is a thing that I find relief in. I like that. I wish I were more like that, where like I didn't need more things. Like I didn't feel the need for more things. My version of that is that 
the normalcy of my life when I when I look at my life and I look at the minivan and I look at you know this the kids and the you know the like the suburban mom shit like the not cool suburban mom stuff that goes into my life and I think oh my god I'm so normal and boring and like I'm just not cool and you know there's no it's not sexy and it's not any of those things anymore and I have to remind myself and this is a hundred percent true which is that the normalcy of my life is extraordinary the idea that I have anything approximating normalcy is that is extraordinary for me because my normal default state is complete tornado and and the idea that I'd be able to like have like people would I'd be able to fit in in society and people would think I'm normal and be surprised of my past that is extraordinary and so same kind of thing which is like I remember that default that I have and so when I look at the things that I might otherwise poo poo I remember like wow look at that I'm doing I pay my bill you know like shit like that where you're like oh my god you know like I, I can I figured out how to do that I fixed something in my house like that was those those things are just not default in my world. They wouldn't have been. Yeah, I, I would never would have imagined I am where I am today. The gifts I have, the the daughters, the house. I got my MBA a couple of years ago, similar to you. And I got like a 3.9 GPA as I went to school. So yeah, I, I would never in my wildest dreams would have imagined I'd end up where I am. I'm very grateful for that. Do you use your recovery skills at work and are they beneficial? Yeah, I do. So I realized the group of people knew stuff I didn't, uh, even how, as brilliant as I am. <laughs> and I, I've kept that humility. So like when I approach a new topic or we talk about a new vertical or a new thing at work, I admit I don't know. And I go find the person that knows or I go figure out how to find that out. But I think there's a lot of arrogant people with advanced degrees that can't say I don't know. And it wastes so much time. So I think that taking that just simple ability to admit what you don't know, it's short, it actually shortcuts the answer because you need complete understanding to solve a lot of problems or you need to go find the expert. I'm a product manager in the B2B market and I have to ask those people that buy our things like, what do you need next? I can't just guess. So I think that's a benefit that is a little unique to me that I get from the sobriety process from AA, from all of it. So I listened to some old episodes. You talked about hobbies and Bikram yoga. Mm -hmm. I found a hobby that has some similarities. That's been great for my sobriety. Mountain biking. You have to completely focus and you can't think about anything else for two hours. You have to, because uh, I do like enduro and downhill and all sorts of stuff. And you have to look at the line in front of you. Or you'll die. Or you'll die. Or you'll break an arm or something. So it's, I get the cardio. I can excel. I can get better. I can do the next bigger jump that I couldn't do last week. It's fun. It's kind of like a roller coaster. I have a group of guys I do it with. It's a way to have a social life during COVID. <laughs> so it's been a great, I'm not saying mountain biking's for everybody, but I do recommend people find a hobby, find their thing. And if it's a hobby that has like intense focus, that's all the better. Yeah. Oh, I love that you brought that up. Yeah. It's, I know a lot of people who, who tell me about mountain biking looks terrifying to me, but for that reason, which, which is what I was saying in Bikram, it's like, you're just, you're trying to survive like 90 minutes in a hundred <laughs> room with a carpet and you're sweating your ass off. And so like you literally can't make a grocery list in your head or can't like, and that is relief that like forced relief. And I think totally a great point is find some 
I'm saying where it is impossible for you to focus on something else. And like with mountain biking, like you, for what you get distracted on something else in your life for one second, like you're falling off the thing. So your brain is in almost like is in survival mode, which in that particular, when it's a hobby, it's for me, it's actually like a relief. I feel relief when I leave there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And uh, I go two or three times a week. I'm cranky if I don't get to do it. Um, <laughs> the, the guy who got me, turned me onto it was from AA. And he pointed out that you can't think about anything else. So I've always remembered that. And I'm grateful for that hobby. I've been thinking about that a lot lately about my ratio of fun to fun to, you know, things I must do. I think in COVID, it got that ratio for all of us got out of place. And that something that's really important for sobriety is to make sure like we got sober so that we could have good lives and have fun. So really taking a look at, you know, trying to bump up the ratio to make fun, you know, there's, there's a lot of obligation, but to make fun, you know, having trips to look forward to having things, you know, on there so that, so that we are enjoying the life, not just being, you know, they say you're a human being, not a human doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you do, you have to have a little selfishness, you know, with when you have kids to say, I'm going to do this one thing for two hours. Sorry, but um, it helps the rest of the week. It's with your partner. It's not with your kids. Yeah. 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 <laughs> At least for me, it's like the kids are like, yeah, whatever. And the, my husband's like, oh, okay. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on here and, and talking about this stuff. If people want to reach out to you or hear about your experiences there somewhere that they can connect with you. Yeah, they can reach out to my LinkedIn or uh, the other socials. I don't mind being reached out to for questions or support on sobriety or mountain biking, whatever you want, or, <laughs> pro, you or product product management in the tech industry. Any Love, of it. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi guys, Ashley and Scott here. We're doing our little outro experiment. Scott, what'd you think? To me, I like Andy's story a lot. It's one where there is certainly harrowing events. There's some crazy things that happen for sure. But I, I think sometimes we have a tendency to have episodes where we have somebody and they have this gigantic story. It's enormous. And then at the end of it, they save the whole world, right? Like they've started a charity that has helped a hundred thousand children or whatever. And you're like, I know for me, sometimes when we are talking to those people, it can be kind of intimidating. And so I am sometimes interested in the stories that feel more like the people Relatable. right alongside me sometimes. I don't know how you feel about that, but I felt like Andy's had some really interesting things and some things that I certainly could relate to, but I do kind of appreciate sometimes where it's not every single story ends with, and then they saved all the bald eagles in <laughs> Yellowstone <laughs> National Park. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things I really like about pulling people who don't usually tell their story is that their stories are not they're not canned they it's a, it's a, and telling it is a very intimate experience for them and you know i don't think that andy tells his story a lot and so the experience with him i could see that it was much more raw for him to talk about it and it, he kind of downplayed some of the stuff but i think uh, you know with regard to where he's come from and and you know what his life looks like today but i think that it's important as you mentioned that people that we get stories in here that 
show someone who is relatable to them and, you know, Hey, I, this is what I've done. This is what it looked like. This is where I took it. This is my family life. Now here is what I'm doing. I've been able to excel in my career. And those avenues, those paths are are important ones to talk about. Sometimes, like you said, you know, some, I, I often believe that my story is often not relatable to a lot of people, which I totally get. And the feelings are relatable, but the but the events aren't. And so I think that that was why Andy was such a good candidate for this because his story, I think, is relatable to many people who struggle with alcoholism. Totally. And I thought it also was just really interesting, the part where you talked about sort of the closest that you had felt to taking a drink was out, mm. uh, was like sitting right next to him. I thought that was really yeah. interesting. So. Yeah, that sucked. That was a, there was a real moment there where you both were kind of like, oh, right. We were both just like sitting on this edge together and nobody had no idea. No idea. No idea. Well, we also wanted to just kind of remind you, as we've said in a couple episodes at this point, we don't expect you to pause the episode in the middle of it to go check out lionrock.life, but you really should. It's great. You don't have to fit into a particular box even in order to find a group of people who really will connect with you. Ashley, tell them a little bit about lionrock.life. So lionrock.life is a community. Um, it's There's an app, lionrocklife or lionrock.life. You can log in from a web browser. And it's a community of people who are recovering together. And they they most of the people define their recoveries differently. And that works just fine. It's non-denominational. So we took out a lot of the God piece that has is very triggering for people that we find in tw- you know, when when people have been going to 12 steps, sometimes that's just a turnoff for them. And so this has over 70 different meetings a week workshops, meditations. They do marathon meetings on holidays that are difficult to stay sober through. There's all sorts of... They have game night, they have movie night, they have all sorts of stuff where they do it remotely. And um, you just create this really important, supportive network of people. And you know, for example, um, sometimes people are do not feel welcome in 12-step meetings if they are using Spoxin and they want support for their recovery. And so that's not that's an example. Sometimes people, they just quit one substance, but not another. That's not something that's going to be accepted in a fully abstinence-based program. There's a space for you People who have children who are in recovery, people who are, you know, spouses, people who are just curious, people who are going through grief and loss and they just want support, you know, for grief or, or illness or things like that. So it's just this huge wide range of resources. And we are giving you free month. The discount code is courage. And after that, it's $9.99 a month. So it's not like it's super crazy uh, expensive, but try it out for a month. See what you think. If you don't like it, cancel it. The uh, the code for the free month is courage. And the real reason that you stayed on for this long is that you wanted to hear Scott's <laughs> dad joke corner. Are you Are you ready, Ashley? Oh my gosh, I'm holding it. I've never been so like you could tell me the most disgusting joke and I would be so comfortable. Like I'm so uncomfortable. It's amazing. I'm I actually really enjoy this because it makes me uncomfortable. Fantastic. So yeah, exactly. So just just lob it at me. Just like I'm I'm holding on. It's not good. Ashley. Where where did Napoleon keep his armies? Oh no. I don't know. In his sleeveys. 
<laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. I'm doing this for you guys. It feel it it hurts inside my body to do this, but I, you oh, know, not enough <laughs> sacrifice not enough. for the show. <laughs> oh my god, it's, it's just sacrifice for the show. It's for the show, and I'm sorry for anyone who hates this. You'll learn when I start to wind up. You can just get out of there before that joke comes. You know. <laughs> Get clear of the it's wreckage. It's like a train wreck. You just can't <laughs> not. You're like, I know it's coming and I know I should look away, but I can't look away. It's that's just, what it is. So mm-hmm. the show's about, you know, mm-hmm. that's yep, what it is. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're here to make you real uncomfortable Absolutely. in the weirdest ways. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh man. Well, we are we're rooting for you this week. We are we're sending you all the good vibes. See you guys soon. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.